Hello and welcome to Ford. It's Earth, the nature, environment and climate change podcast that breaks down big topics and asks, is there anything that we can try and do to help save the planet just a little bit? I am I'm absolutely completely thrilled to be joined by my wonderful friend, zoologist, science communicator and now superbly successful author, Sophie Pavel. And we're going to be romping through the pages of her brilliant new book, Forget Me Not, which chronicles her low carbon adventures through Britain to see and learn more about 10 wonderful different species that are being impacted by climate change. You're looking very awkward as I introduce you. <laughs> Sophie, fresh or fatigued from book promotion, welcome and how the heck are you? Hello. It's so nice to be back. I feel like it's sort of long time no see, but it's um it's it's nice familiar territory to be sat over a screen with you. So thank you so much for having me on. And I am indeed You're feeling very welcome. awkward hearing you hearing <laughs> you give that introduction. Oh. Should I have made it less complimentary? Would that have been would that have been more to your taste? I think it's so. hard Just not completely to compliment derogatory. your achievements though because you've done some really <laughs> awesome stuff this year and the entire point of talking to you about it is because it is genuinely very awesome. Oh thank you. Well it's definitely been a ride, I can say that for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with how we always kick off for what it's earth then to try and restore some normality. Sophie, what one good thing have you done for the planet this week? Oh good one. Um, so I have ridden my bike more where I could have easily driven and very good it's nice and easy to do that in the summer and nice and easy when I don't have a puncture uh yeah but um (laughs) yes there have been there have been let's say two to three journeys where I normally would have driven because of convenience and and rapidity but then I thought actually I've got the luxury of a little bit of time I'm gonna ride my bike and I did that and I felt pretty good about it this is the famous bike the romance with whom is basically an, a massive undercurrent to your book. <gasps> Thank right? you for noticing. <laughs> <laughs> I love that thing. I really do. And I wish um, someone had recorded the utter joy and slight hysteria when Abby Cook, the wonderful illustrator who illustrated the cover and the internals of Forget Me Not, totally captured my bike on the back cover. And it is actually oh. my bike. And it was just like oh my gosh, that's my bike. It's a very beautiful book. She's done an amazing job, actually. It's a, it's a very good looking book. Before Thank you even dive much. into the contents, it's a lovely looker. Thank you. It is. Um... Which I appreciate. It's not a compliment for you in any way. It's all No, it's not. And I think that's why I'm so ready to compliment the aesthetic of the book because I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> no, it was, it was a team effort. Um, but Abby just did. Uh, I just couldn't even have dreamt of the beauty of it all kind of put together and her um her the way she's she's brought all these species to life on the page is is amazing was it kind of overwhelming the first time you saw it because you've been working on it for so long and pouring your heart and soul into it to like have a visual representation of your book was that just incredible it really was it was difficult to describe i think because it had been such a private project and just me chucking words on a page for you know a good 18 months and then all of a sudden it started to materialize and my editor kept being like you've made a book this is an actual book <laughs> and I was like oh yeah I think I felt slightly in denial or, or detached <laughs> well I think okay well we circled around a little bit there um so riding your bike that's a brilliant one good thing uh much better than mine mine was that I needed a new pair of hiking trousers because I'm working here in Sweden for a month involving lots of outdoorsy time. And all of my hiking gear I've basically had for about four years, which in itself is a good thing, I think. 
but I needed another pair. Uh, so I went oh, to yeah. Depop, my, or maybe Vinted, I can't remember, one of the two, and I bought another pair of hiking mm. trousers secondhand. Excellent. Bargain and less fast fashion and all that jazz. But that's Great mine. Shot. Yours is cooler. Yours is cooler. I'm looking forward to, I've recently rekindled an interest in my bike in the, my allotment, uh, which long-time listeners will know is a, a, is a big feature of my a, life these a days. A core part of Emma Brisdian. It is part of my personality, yeah, at this point. <laughs> I'm really missing it, actually. I don't really miss Are home. You? I've been away for three weeks, but I'm really missing my <laughs> I've got a lovely friend who lives locally who's been, like, watering it, especially through the heatwave. Oh, And she yeah, keeps sending me pictures of, of, like, my courgettes and my carrots and stuff. And it's, like, the one thing that I cannot wait to do when I go <laughs> home is go back to the allotment, which is really sad. Like, obviously, can't wait to see my friends and family, too, but a lot of the vegetables they are, your friends are and family as well. in my mind. Yeah, until I eat them. <laughs> but dreaming that's also of a <laughs> A cuddle with my courgette. <laughs> oh, my kohlrabi, how are you getting on? Um, I've lost track already. What was I going to say? Oh, yeah. So I, I now cycle to the allotment, which has driven a, a re... It's rekindled an interest in my bike. Um, and I can much more see the appeal of pedal power. Although I'm still quite terrified of going on roads. Mm. I'm lucky to live in a part of the world where there's a lot oh, yeah, of sure. like lovely cycle paths in nature and connecting two cities. So I need to I need to do a bit more Sophie Powers. I think I need to start taking my bike on more adventures. It is good fun. Yeah. I think I think that was one of the nice things about your book actually was kind of very much like, no, you can just go and do stuff. Do you know what I mean? I'm still I still feel like I'm slightly surprised as an adult to still be able to just make my own decisions and be able to do things without yeah, I know. having to ask That's permission. Like, I'm like, I'll be like, I'll be back by five, around the yeah? UK. <laughs> yeah. Like, no, I will I will just get on my bike actually and go somewhere and look for a thing and I can just get on with it. And just I think that was it. that was really nice. Oh, thank you. So co- conservation a big underpinning theme to your book. I mean I've sat so I've sat down with your book recently, but actually as of the last couple of weeks, I have switched from paper to audio and I've been listening to the audiobook. Um, and Ooh. I think in general, I've started listening to more audiobooks. Um, uh, perhaps you might have guessed as someone who quite likes audio as a medium. <laughs> but I'm particularly pleased that you were able to record your audiobook yourself because it, it genuinely, although I haven't seen you in weeks, it feels like I've been hanging out with you for the last couple of weeks. So it's really nice. And I think that's in part because obviously it's your actual voice coming through in my headphones, but in part because your writing is so undeniably you. And I love the fact that, I mean, I've learned absolutely loads, including the fact that seabird poo feeds coral reefs. Didn't realise that in the tropics. I love your way mm. of talking about that. Guano. Yeah, it's very cool. But amongst all of the jam-packed facts, like it is undeniably you. It's all served in equal measure with your personality. And just wanted to, I guess, throw another compliment your way on well done on being able to and being allowed to and just wholeheartedly embodying you in your writing. I think I've read a lot of books which can start to feel quite similar and I wouldn't put yours in that category at all. Oh, thank you very much. That's, um, it's, it's, it's so weird but gratifying to hear that because I had a very specific way I wanted to communicate these things and it's so much easier to write when it's kind of, well, I personally find it a lot easier to write how I would speak to a friend and especially about complicated topics, because Mm. as you know, in science communication, you're almost a translator between science and the public. And the more complicated the topic, the harder you've got to work to translate that for it to be a meaningful, hopefully action led 
mm. thing for the public to understand. And so I was constantly like, okay, how do I talk about green energy in a way that's exciting? <laughs> or how would I... <laughs> the question I ask myself every day. <laughs> well, you know, or how would I uh, talk about failing soil health that is empowering and maybe funny? Mm. And I think it was, it, it was also more me, because I didn't know a lot about any of these topics before I started writing. A lot of it was just me trying to help myself understand so I was translating these things for myself and in a way that came across as hopefully just a bit more of a conversation because I want mm. climate change is the great leveler and I wanted it so much to feel like I was learning along with you and we're doing this together as a team, me and reader, as mm. opposed to me just being like, hello, I'm a writer now. Please listen to what I say <laughs> and I will tell you what to think and how to feel and I will translate it for you in a way that sounds really clever and, you know, I don't know. Not maybe that well, helpful. And just, yeah. yeah, not very helpful and a little bit ostracising and a bit like, here I am with all my knowledge, I'm going to dump it on you like an ice bucket. And That's kind it will of how I feel you. about a lot of nature books. I oh, think one too. of the things I've, you and I have talked about this before actually, like I kind of struggle to read nature books in the sense that I try and absorb them like a textbook. Mm. And I think that's because the writing does come across slightly textbooky. There seems to be like it's quite a lot work. of, let me show off how many facts and things I know. Yeah. Um, and I don't always get very far with them. Not an issue at all with yours. Again, testament to oh, your writing and ability to sound communicator. But I do, I do think that that's, you know, a, a bit of a problem when it comes to trying to talk to people about, yeah, like you said, massive topics like climate change and conservation, where a lot of the a lot of the stuff that we as readers are given is very like thick, heavy and not necessarily very accessible for all. Mm. Whereas your book, I think probably is, it's got to hold some kind of record for a nature book with the most times the word babe or Kardashian has been used. <laughs> oh, I had, to, I had to remove a few and I had to remove a few hashtags because I was a bit hashtag happy. And then I was really? like, oh, come on. Yeah, because I was a bit like, I wanted to get a few in there, but there were a few too many. To, that it started to lose impact but um you know there's so much uh, I kind of outline in the prologue how inextricably linked climate change is with society and culture and people and so I wanted to I really enjoyed having the freedom to explore some perhaps with sarcasm in there maybe some little um social commentary elements of of mm how can we relate this to our everyday lives to remind ourselves that actually this is so linked to how we live and how we've built our society and everything that um, I just, it was just so much fun to just try and see what I could add in there that would perhaps just intersperse as much light as possible in amongst the dark elements without sugarcoating mm. the, the, you know, the harsh facts and the harsh truths, but it was all about balance. So there was so much, it, every chapter I remember my editor being like, why do you describe each chapter as like you're building each chapter? And I was like, because it really feels like a construction where mm. there are so many elements that I needed to add. And there was such an architecture that I had to sort of, that I wanted to follow. And I wanted to add in so many bits of, okay, we've had a bit of a heavy section. Let's talk about, let's go back to the travel. Where are we on the journey? Have I just eaten something? Or what's the weather oh, like? Been since I've spoken about Love Island. Yeah. Exactly. Let's get some more Kim Kardashian in there. <laughs> um, and um, so there were lots of things I wanted to try and include and so each chapter feels quite jam-packed and very busy but I hope 
that kind of symbolizes, I guess, the the busyness and the hustle in which I think we are operating at the moment in the Western mm. world in particular. But then, and also how my brain works. But then, hopefully, it it just keeps the pace enough that you carry on reading and that that stuff just the stuff starts to feel maybe a little bit heavy and a bit depressing you then snap back out of it into something a bit more present and perhaps light definitely so oh well let's start with some of the like really obvious questions then for listeners who haven't seen which i'm not sure how they would have missed or read forget me not yet uh, what what were your 10 species and how did you choose those 10 species to tell the story of because you've picked 10 very varied both geographically within Britain and kind of like lifestyle um, and niche occupying species. And they're all offering, or they're all having different challenges presented to them by climate change. There must've been heaps to dig through to go, all right, these, these are my 10. So how did these ones make the cut? A good question. Um, <laughs> and uh, I feel like I've sort of selected 10 children. Um, and I'm very proud of each and every one of them. But I have my favourites and some annoy me a lot still. But I love them, <laughs> no matter what. <laughs> but, <laughs> Said through gritted teeth. Um, but yeah, it was, it, was, it was fun and difficult to, to pick these 10 species because, as you say, I wanted 10 species that would take me to all different parts of, of Britain. And because of COVID, I could only f- relatively much stay within Britain. Um, and not go over to to Northern Ireland, for example. Um, and so I wanted to represent the British Isles as much as I could within the the, the restrictions that I had, but then also show how kind of weird and varied and complex climate change is. So I think we just think climate change, rising temperatures, climate change, rising sea levels, but it's so much more nuanced than that. And I think mm. I didn't really realise that until I started to appreciate the multiple lines of attack that it can take on some species. So for some, it can affect their diet. Some, it can affect their breeding cycles. Some, it can affect their habitat. Some, it can actually even potentially improve their lifestyle, um, but only up to a, a point. And so I wanted to reveal all the different colours of climate change through using these species as a gateway to these wider conversations. And I wanted to choose species that would represent the different taxa, so like birds and mammals and insects and and habitats and and things like that but there are a disproportionate number of insects in the book because I wanted to highlight how insects are disproportionately affected by climate change and so I bookend the book with the marsh fritillary butterfly and the bilberry bumblebee to kind of hopefully show that life often begins and ends with the species that are right down at the bottom and um yeah it was most all Pretty much all of the species that are in the book were the first cut. Um, apart from seagrass was a last minute choice. <laughs> it was actually ah. meant to be the pink sea fan. <laughs> oh, Hold on to your hands. Something I've never heard of. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I love that you put seagrass in there though. That was one of my favourite chapters. Yeah, I'm so pleased I did. A lot of people are really enjoying that one. Um, and the pink sea fan didn't make the cut for various reasons. First of all, I could not, I, tr- I tried so hard to get excited about it. But I like if you can't get excited, <laughs> I was just how's like, that going to translate into the pages? Like, I don't think I can muster the energy to write about ten thousand, write about the pink sea fan for ten thousand words. And also, a huge element of the fact that I didn't choose it is because it lives in deep water, cold coral mm. reefs around like Devon and Cornwall. And a really important part was for me to 
travel to these places and try and find these species via low carbon means. And I could have got there, could have got to the coast to see the pink sea fan, but I would have had to then don scuba equipment, which then immediately becomes slightly inaccessible for your everyday person who perhaps just wants to go and see something. And they're on a bit of a time budget, on a bit of a money budget. And scuba diving seems a little bit out of reach and it's out of reach for me. Um, And so I thought that wasn't totally relatable. And so I then thought, actually, I think habitat would be really important to talk about. Let's see what this seagrass thing is all about. And lo and behold, it's one of the most astonishing things ever. And the fact that you can, at low tide, wade out into it and then just be among seagrass. You can't get much more accessible than that. And so I was so pleased to to, to, to wave a fond farewell to, to Pink Sea Fan in favour of seagrass. Um, but it was when I was speaking to some of these scientists, so throughout the book, I get to speak to all sorts of amazing experts to learn a little bit more about mm-hmm. um, what's going on. Every expert was like, well, well you know, why are, you doing, why are you doing the Merlin? Like, you must do the Hen Harrier or like, oh, do the Goshawk. And I was just like, no, this is exactly why I need to do the Merlin because you, Mr. Expert, are finding it too... The Merlin is too elusive to talk about in depth, but you want to talk about something that's more familiar and more popular. But I wanted to celebrate the underdogs and the forgotten species. So the Merlin I really tussled with and I had a few conversations with my editor being like, I just can't find out anything about the Merlin. It's just going to be a crap chapter. Um, But then I realised that was my attitude and my ego perhaps doing the talking and I hadn't really bothered to think more laterally about um, how can we talk about this bird? And perhaps it's, it's, it's rarity is totally why we need to be talking about it. And there's, there was a, a lot of fun, cultural, historical, folklore things to talk about, of course, with Birds of Prey. Um, mm. So yeah, so Merlin very nearly didn't make the cut. But as I admit in the book, I almost betrayed my own brief there by being too lazy to try and dig deeper with it. <laughs> I'm glad it did. I enjoyed the Merlin chapter, and also, um, I, I, in the in the kindest way possible, it was quite nice to see you finding it hard to find a species. Nice it to added see me fail. Slightly different yeah. pace. No, would Good. we say fail, or would I we def- say take a slightly different journey? Yeah, it, I think it. <laughs> I, so I, I think it was no, but it, it almost made you more relatable. To be honest, it was a. I tried bloody hard, and I couldn't find this thing. Um, well, uh, as we. As we've talked about before in nature books, there's often a tendency for everything to just be a success and for things to be found. And aren't we good at questing and aren't we good at finding things and identifying them? Well done, humans. But mm. actually, nature doesn't want to be found. It will be, it, it does its own thing. And mm. it's a privilege if we find it and it's a privilege if we see it. And so the fact that there were species that I couldn't find and I didn't see, sometimes despite being with people who really knew what they were looking for and knew what they were yeah. talking about, it was then just a wake-up call of, gosh, this species actually really is rare because I'm in one of the hotspots and I can't find it. But then again, it made it just be more about the journey and the thrill of the chase and connecting to nature and the experience of just giving it a go, despite mm. having little to no expertise in in naturalist endeavours. Um, but I still had a great time and there's so much joy to be found, even if you don't necessarily... You know, I, I, I don't think we need to pressure ourselves to see stuff. I think it's more about the experience of just being in its surroundings. 
Yeah, it's underscoring the fact that like connecting with nature doesn't mean ticking a box of seeing a thing. It's yeah. going out and enjoying being out there and, and actually reaping the benefits of just being away from a screen and out mm. of our insulated houses and, and, and seeing what's about it. You know, all of the other things you see on the journey to find one particular thing are not invalidated because you didn't find that one particular thing. Mm. You've still had an awesome experience and done something that was really good for you. And, I, you know, so I think, I think that's why in some ways that was also one of my favourite chapters. I, I liked, I saw a lot of, I don't know, I think we've all had experiences when we're like, oh, well, that didn't go to plan or oh, mm. I didn't manage this thing. And I, I liked seeing that represented in your, in your journeys. It felt, you know, very real. But um, I'm going to pull us back slightly towards seagrass, which I think, yeah. Any, anyone who knows me knows that I'll always talk about things like <laughs> the things that are under our feet. We've got soil, bogs, very, very glad to hear some peatland stuff coming up in your, in your book. Enjoyed that massively. And the things that are under, you know, under our feet that are not very sexy, things like our soils, our bogs, our seagrasses. Um, love that there was a big chapter on this. And in one of the parts where you're talking about seagrass, you talk about something that's been on my mind a little bit over the last couple of years. And this concept of like gorilla conservation, mm. of us getting fed up with having to jump through hoops and things not happening at any particular speed. And just the idea that I kind of really like, but also can't quite work out whether it's good or not of like sneaking out and just like leaving seeds places to grow wildflower meadows summer which isn't your land or like chucking a few saplings in a bit of woodland that looks a bit depleted even though it's not yours because you know the greater good of helping to build a woodland or a wildflower meadow or in your example chucking some seagrass seeds in an environment that you know would thrive from having a seagrass meadow restored what i mean what are your thoughts on this concept of gorilla conservation i mean helpful hindrance it can be both right yeah it's a really interesting kind of conundrum in a way because i'm definitely one of those people where i'm a slight control freak and sometimes i think oh well you know it will just be done quicker and better if i just do it now than wait for someone else to do it or or i don't know and i think we've seen so many fascinating and enlivening examples of that you know from from uh mammal reintroductions and um uh <laughs> and um things like putting I'm saying um, nothing saying nothing moving swiftly on uh <clears throat> beavers what um and <laughs> and i give the example in the book where um my dad and i put up a bird box in a local park and just left it there and um, we totally weren't allowed to do that. We didn't own the tree. We didn't own the land. But then we had nesting coal tits, I think it was, or great tits, one of, the, one of the tits nesting in there. And then they fledged and it was wonderful and it was really exciting. But the trouble is, is that I can't help but feel that those guerrilla actions are not that sustainable in the sense that they don't involve community that much because they're done in secret. Mm-hmm. And as I allude it towards the end of seagrass and it's just this, it's such a wonderful, hopeful community movement in terms of what Project Seagrass, the charity that's really leading this effort is doing because it's placing the power in the people and empowering people to come together in nature restoration. And if we truly want to have lasting impact in the environment and restoring our relationship with it, we really must pull together. And I think we can only do that if we, celebrate collaboration and um just do things unfortunately by the book because they'll have they'll have greater impact in in the long term but yeah of course there's something exciting about kind of going out and um 
you know, screw the system and let's just do it ourselves. But that only that that isolates impact, I think. It doesn't build bridges. And, you know, I can see the argument that if you're feeling very eco anxious, going and throwing wildflower seeds in a grassy verge feels like a thing to do that is positive and can help you feel yeah. like you're having more impact than waiting for boxes to be ticked elsewhere. Yeah, you're not doing anything. That, but you're not going to have harm. You're not going to induce harm at all. Well, well, this is the thing. If you're not aware of what species that you're putting out, true, you can. Yeah, you I think that's very good point. Some, yes. So I think that's something else to be considered as well. If very there true. are any, you know, people that are potentially wanting to run around chucking seeds everywhere. Um, know what seeds you're chucking. Actually, yes, is, very good It's something that I think would be quite important. We're throwing invasive species or you know parasitic grasses or whatever in places where they would actually do more harm than good. Mm. I think if you are of the ilk for midnight conservation under <laughs> under dark, yeah, pop up a bird box. That can't do too much harm in comparison to maybe throwing species that might not be uh, welcome in an environment. I think I don't know. Perhaps that's. That's loosely my advice, I don't know, but maybe I don't want to be known as someone who's giving advice to a secret underground conservation movement. Who knows? But on that, segueing through the lens... <laughs> dot, dot, dot. ...of eco-anxiety. Um, eco-anxiety's been a bit of a topic that we've looked at in the last couple of episodes in Forward It's Earth. We've done, a, we've done an actual episode on it, which had more feedback mm. than I was expecting. I was kind That's of nervous really to talk about it because I wanted it to be really useful, but weirdly overwhelmingly in a way but in a very positive way we've had so much feedback where people are saying either yes i feel this way or thank you so much for either shining a light on it or making me feel less alone or maybe your tools might be useful like i think it's for me really underscored how prevalent eco-anxiety is in our society i know Mm. you and i have had conversations about how our eco-anxieties manifest and i and i know you know i know it's something that tickles the, the corners of your mind and in in some ways, it leaks into your book in certain paragraphs. So I kind of wanted to check in with well, a, how you're doing, but also was the process of writing the book or was the process of promoting it or the process of even going on the journeys, did that have any an impact for you and your eco-anxieties? Has it buoyed you, perhaps? Have you found hope in the process? Um, yeah, it's a really interesting one. I think um, I'm a naturally optimistic person. And I don't think I could have written Forget Me Not had I not ultimately had a thread of optimism carrying me through the whole thing, because it was really interesting. Some of the conversations I've had with these scientists would go on, and they were all over Zoom, would go on for maybe two, two and a half hours. And I wouldn't take any notes throughout the conversation because I wanted to just fully be present with them and make sure I was asking the best questions I could to get the information I needed. Mm. Um, and then I would record the zoom and then watch it back and transcribe every word, but also take note of their body language, their tone of voice, their intonations. Did they look worried? Did they deliver that piece of data with a frown on their face? All these little things so that I could can try and humanize academics and scientists, which for so long, you know, kind of feel like other and clinical and very kind of together and serious but they're just people and there were certain scientists where they were just utterly human about it and you know to see the fear on their faces and to hear the 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 concern in their voice and so many of them would relate their concerns my last question to every single person was what do you you know what scares you and so many of them referred straight back to their children or their nieces and nephews or their godchildren for example 
And so there is just such a present concern about the next generation and the world they're inheriting. And the fact that these people are, you know, on the front lines, you know, just fully consumed by what's happening to the planet and trying desperately to dedicate their time and resources to finding solutions was really moving. And there were moments where I couldn't help but feel like, oh gosh. But then what was really hopeful is it was such an amazing wake up call to realise that there are people like that on the front lines dedicating time and resources and their brains to finding these solutions. And often these solutions are so unbelievably simple and we know what to do as of so much of climate change, but it just comes down to a choice as to whether we're brave enough to take the steps needed to adapt and have a changed way of living and change our infrastructure and change our priorities and put pressure on those in charge. Um, and so it was ultimately a hopeful experience. And I think the fact that I was visiting places where you could see it adapting in real time and to be reminded by these experts that these species, for example, with the mountain hare or the black guillemot, they have survived as a species millennia with huge, enormous challenges and they can adapt, but they need to be given the chance. And the trouble is, is that unfortunately now the world for them is changing faster than it ever has. And so evolution has never had to work so hard to mm. come up with adaptations to mitigate against these impacts that a lot of these species are facing. So it is worrying. And I have to say that, you know, we're in the wake of the record-breaking heat wave in the UK. And I don't think I've ever felt so anxious about it. And I was so confused and I felt so so much anger at, at the way that the heat wave was reported so inconsistently. Flippant comments of, God, it's nice to see some sunshine, isn't it? And oh, we're, mm. you know, as if we're 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 owed a, a debt of sunshine in the UK. We're not. We live in it. We're an island in the Atlantic. You know, that's not our mm. climate. That's not how it's meant to be. And so there was a lot of anger there. There was a lot of resentment as to how we just don't seem to be learning how to talk about these things better in a way that is helpful for the public. But encouraged by the fact that I think more than ever people are challenging the way things are working people are asking questions people are highlighting inconsistencies um and so I think if we just carry on doing that hopefully that's a, a good direction to be going in but it flip-flops but I don't necessarily feel I don't feel it viscerally in an emotional sense it's more I think I just get angry about it um but it has to be a temporary <laughs> fight or flight emotion because I think hope is a much more sustainable power to carry you through these difficult things um, and to help give you clarity of mind so that you can make better choices and 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 assess things critically because true eco-anxiety and that kind of very complex emotion I think is is a dangerous place to to linger in for too long I think if we're looking at positive emotions I think it's like you said, it's very powerful to try and instill hope. And that's probably one of the hardest things to do in yours and mine's line of work, trying to talk to people about the climate crisis. Um, I think you do it very well, but I think it's very hard. I think that's something I sometimes struggle with because sometimes I will lose really a bit hard. of hope. And unless you have it, oh, yeah. unless you're holding it in yourself, I think it's hard to put it towards yeah. other people. But also another emotion that's, that seems to be talked about quite a lot in the, in the sphere of people that do similar things to what we do is joy and this concept of 
not being able to put joy first either. Like we should be kind of living a very self-sacrificial life mm. in martyrdom for the planet. <laughs> and and this ties slightly with, um, you know, I was also wanting to talk to you about your low carbon travel, which was, of course, a major part of your book, all of your travels, all of your adventures you trying to do through as low carbon means as possible. Um, I've basically torn my carbon footprint a new one this year um, after not going away or not flying for three or four years, mostly because of COVID, but also um, I opted to buy a van and do UK-based adventures and things like that. And then this year I've had, I've flown a lot. And part of that has been for work. And even where, you know, so now I'm working on like public engagement initiatives with climate change, but it was still the cheapest option for mm. my client to fly me out rather than put me on a night train for two sure. days. Yeah, so yeah. of course that was what happened. Um, but then also the other trips were kind of delayed, joyful trips with friends. And then I felt an immense amount of guilt underneath all of those experiences, be them work, be them whether I'm trying to do something positive while I'm here in terms of the climate crisis or be that simply just trying to enjoy myself with friends. I've really struggled with the knowledge that I've flown. Mm. And it, it feels like it leans a lot into, yeah, conversations I've been seeing about a lot of, you know, a lot of, a lot of like, re- I would say real activists. I don't count myself as an activist. Like real activists who, who spend their entire lives shouting and demanding for change and trying to create massive uproar and uplift around the climate crisis. And, and they're all burning out so mm. hard and mm. fast. Because they feel as though they are not allowed to prioritise joy. Mm. And I don't know whether that's something you've felt or felt adjacent to or kind of experienced or I, I, I don't know. I think I'm still untangling my thoughts on the role of joy in mm. trying to create a better planet. But you, you always strike me as someone who manages to find joy in the things that you do. Um, I don't know. Yeah. How do you feel about prioritising joy when we're faced with such massive challenges as a communicator? Um, that's a really good question and it's kind of easy and difficult to answer, but I think it's absolutely what we need to be prioritising because it was really important that Forget Me Not would be a joyful book first and foremost and a celebration of the simplicity of just finding nature again in whatever that means to you, in whatever way that uh, materialises. And I did a lot of looking into psychology and and what um, scientifically what joy does to the brain. And in terms of, you know, I, I certainly struggle with, as we were saying before, that I found nature books really, really hard work and I would struggle to remember them. But then I think, well, how can I re- why can I remember the intimate details of the latest gossip with Jennifer Lopez or Jennifer Aniston? But I cannot for the life of me remember, you know, (laughs) the data that links the weather with the climate or this interesting discovery about sea surface temperatures and Atlantic salmon. Why can I not remember that? But I can remember my new detail about seemingly trivial things. Mm. And it's because I was feeling relaxed and in a good mood and genuinely interested in the gossip in, let's say, Grazia. Um, (laughs) Not sponsored. but. I started to, whether it was because the culture in which we have talked about climate change and conservation has been slightly gloomy and doomy, as soon as I go to some a, a piece of information there, my brain instantly is expecting doom and gloom. 
And therefore my brain, as part of my brain shuts off because I'm kind mm. of slightly detached and disinterested already before I even start reading. It could be the most interesting piece of research ever. Chances are I won't remember it in two days. Unless Jennifer Aniston is also featured. <laughs> what I'm hearing is that we need more celebrities, particularly those that grace the glossy pages of Grazia we to be spouting do. climate narratives. Absolutely, Emma. This is this is the completely the Get crux off your of the issue. Jet. Kim Kardashian, and talk to people about bogs, please. <laughs> Tell us about your compost heap. Um, <laughs> um, but the, the main thing is, is that information recall is so much better when you're feeling good, when you're in a positive mood, you haven't got too much cortisol, you've got some nice sort of happy hormones going on. Um, and it's because your, your brain is so much more receptive to all kinds of information when you're in a in a better state of mind. And this is why on social media, I always try and advocate, you know, whatever, however gaggy self-care sounds. It's so important. If you are not in a good position to look after the planet and make good decisions for it and to make it seem like an energizing, worthy activity for other people to also enlist in, if you are not in a good state of mind and you, you know, you're not looking after yourself and your head, it just doesn't work. And mm. so it was so important for me to come at these topics from an angle of, of ultimate joy because then it, it makes you care about what's being lost. You know, if you're emotionally at attached to something, you're going to really care about its future. So that's why I wanted to have 10 species that would ultimately become, hopefully, well, to me, they became characters that I would then mm. become obsessed with their eccentricities and their weirdness and then when I learned about the plight of their future or the, or, the, or the troubles that they're facing, I cared about them more and I'd become more passionate about trying to figure out how we could stop that from happening. And so I think that, you know, I completely, it, it makes me so sad to see these incredibly intelligent, passionate activists on social media. Again, I don't identify as an activist myself, but to see just exhaustion and emotional burnout when they're relaying headlines and relaying data about heat waves and wildfires and stuff. And I just really want to message them and A, say, you know, are you okay? But then also recommend that they take some time out and really, you know, step away from mm. this space because it seems like it's really intoxicating them. And I don't think that that's necessarily how to recruit more support and participation in what's mm. going to be a long road of action for the planet. And so writing forget-me-not was my climate action and promoting it is my climate action and I'm finding so much enjoyment in it yes some of it was absolutely beyond exhausting to try and figure out how to solve problems sentence-wise and, and structurally about how to relay this stuff and then ultimately oh gosh I've got to make it joyful but sometimes I couldn't and I think it's okay to it's totally okay to admit to feeling eco-anxious and it's really important to do that but it has to have a shelf life it has to be short term and I think the more people we have professing the joy that can be found in taking action for nature and adapting to a new way of living and a new way of thinking I think we're going to get more people interested and curious than we are if we go down the route of trying to let our emotions perhaps um, get the better of us. Mm. So overall, prioritise joy both personally and in, and in our work to yeah. promote sustainable But don't action. pressure yourself to feel that. I think, I think you know, nothing is worse than, than 
sort of someone telling you you should be happy and you're not yeah it's totally Mm. subjective and it has to be totally coming from you Mm. a couple of nods to your writing process then before we move on to the fun bit because i do have something lined up oh which i've now put pressure on by describing it as fun anyway before (laughs) before we get to that um i i kind of wanted to know a little bit about your writing process what did that look like for you obviously you know you had a plan you're going to undertake several adventures but what was your what was your method for getting it down on page and, and did the whole thing evolve a lot while you were, you know, from the pitch uh, or did you, did you largely have a plan and stick to it? What did the actual getting this lovely blue book together look like? Um, well, it was a mixture of knowing what to do and having no idea. Cool. And <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so the the book I pitched is is pretty much exactly the book that is now here. When I got the commission, I remember sending an email to my editor who I'd never met because of COVID and other things. I was like, "Great, this is so unbelievably exciting. How how do I how do I get going?" And they were like, "What what what do you mean? Just just go, do it. Chat to you later." Um <laughs> See I was ya. like, "This was your Brill. idea. <laughs> Thank you." I was like, okay, let's go. Um, and so it was very much like I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. I just knew that I had 10 trips to make and COVID was a bit of a, a bit of a ball ache, um, as, as we know, mm. and uh, it wasn't planned. And so that became an unexpected part of the narrative. But I, I developed a rhythm that I kind of started to really feel comfortable with come chapter five. So I didn't do the trips necessarily in order but sometimes that's how the, that's the way it works. So, for example, chapter one is the first trip I took. Mm. Marsh Fritillary, Bodmin Moor. Kind of, you know, it was done in a day and then I could start ticking it off the list. And it's interesting for me because chapter one en- ended up needing the most work because it's the first chapter I fully wrote. And I can still, when I, if I read it back, which I don't, by the way, I'm not that narcissistic. I sit and <laughs> yeah. read my book of yeah, an yeah. evening. Listeners, um, you can't see, but the behind is just a shrine <laughs> to forget me not. <laughs> Obsessed. Um, no. <laughs> um, I'm joking, but, you have a lovely houseplant behind you. The, <laughs> thank you. Uh, it's called Pamela, because Pamela gave it to me. Very nice. Yeah, I name all my plants after the people who kindly give them to me. Anyway, we go back I like to that a lot. the question. Thank you. Um, so when I, when I, for example, when I was reading the audiobook, when I read the first chapter, um, where I can read how terrified I was of this whole endeavor, I can see in my writing how I'm a bit like, oh, this is so weird. What the hell? I've got absolutely no idea what I'm doing. This is so kind of mad and silly and crazy and, and there's no plan, but oh, well, let's go. Mm. Um, and then as we go through the book and definitely through chapter five onwards, so chapter five when we go to North Ronaldsay in Orkney, um, I really kind of feel like I find my feet and I find my rhythm with it. And actually chapter 10 ended up being the last chapter I wrote. And I wrote that in like two or three days. And it just came so much more easily, I think, because I kind of had my routine of mm. go on the trip, get off social media, take random notes on my phone of weird observations, weird conversations I overhear, you know, colours, smells, sights, all that sort of stuff. I just wanted to build as vivid a a journey as I could for the reader so that they really did feel like they were coming with me. Um, mm. And then I would then have alongside those notes, or several, sometimes 10 pages of my own research, 
about that species, about the issues it was facing, about that sort of angle of climate change. And then I would have about 10 pages of transcribed interview with relevant experts. And then I would sort of have them all on a screen and categorize them into themes of journey, climate change, species, biology, interview, expert, blah, blah, blah. And then that Mm. would really be the kind of foundations on which the chapter was built. And then in between all of that, I would have reflections and musings and I don't know random bits and um but then the question the 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 main challenge was I didn't want each chapter to just become like an isolated short story about each Mm. species and they kind of are and it's nice because some people say they've gone back and reread another chapter or they 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 sort of see them as kind of little short stories which is really nice but then the challenge was linking them together so it would be a a sort of start to finish narrative um, but then it wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be because so many of these issues within climate change and biodiversity loss are inextricably interlinked. And and I'll be honest here, how many times did you have to right-click synonyms? Oh my gosh, so many. Thesaurus is my best friend. <laughs> Thesaurus.com. So good. Oh, on- um, Honestly, it's, it's, it's beautifully written. Thank you for putting this thing you. out into the world. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Right, I promised you something to lighten up a little notch at, at the end. Um, so this is something that you are, I would say, mildly famous for. Oh. A quiz. And I'm titling Ooh. this, and I, I was very proud of this, the Did You Forget Me or Not quiz. Oh, hello. Hello. Right, I've pulled, I've pulled some, some of the stats from your book, and I want oh, to see no. if you can remember them. Oh, I'm imagining that some of them are burned into your brain, uh, whereas others were, were just ones that absolutely fascinated me and I wanted to highlight. So, I mean, I've probably forgot on all of them. Let's see. Are you ready to try? <laughs> <laughs> Highlight the fraud that I am. I d- I d- as a ghost you writer, had a ghostwriter. <laughs> <laughs> How we love. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to start with seagrass because um, that's my fave. In the um, UK, yeah. since uh, 1936, how much seagrass have we lost? I'll accept a percentage rather than a hectareage. Is it 97%? Oh, you're very close. I'm going to give you a half point. It's 92. Oh, of course it is. Wildflower meadows is 97%. Ah, okay. Mm. Uh, You you said you wanted to pop a lot of insects into the book. Yeah. um, And they kind of made a sort of starring role, I suppose, in the uh, long-eared bat chapter. How many (laughs) insects can a bat eat per night? Oh, hang on. It's like 400 and something. <laughs> it's 4,000. So we're mostly there. <laughs> okay, it's like 4,000 or something. <laughs> just times that by 10, yeah? Yeah. I just, have, I just had four and a couple zeros in my head. So, 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 that, so that's... I can see that. I can totally see the link. Thank you. <laughs> okay, quick one about poo. Yeah. Because go. I massively enjoyed the dung beetle chapter. Oh, Without yay. really expecting to. I love how much of a role poo has in our landscape poo that is everything. I've never even thought of before it's actually vitally important it really is so according to the United Nations when observing global methane emissions how much can we attribute to farts and poo from livestock on pasture is it like 60% it's a third gosh 30% then <laughs> it's, still, it's still a staggering it's amount it's still a staggering amount <laughs> But I, I thought this was so, that was such an exciting or interesting chapter, though. Like, 
you know, I really enjoyed where you were talking about the fact that we're trying to see whether dung beetles can bury poo fast enough to basically act as like quite useful carbon mm, sequesterers. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to go with sequesterers. That's my new, uh, new phrase. Word of um, the day. But, yeah. But, but maybe actually that this isn't something they're able to do at a speed that is actually impactful. Yeah. But at the same time, it's still amazingly beneficial because they're introducing loads of microbes and nutrients and stuff into the soil in their own way. So we can't, we do need to worry about our dung yeah. beetles. And then the fact that we need to worry about the diversity of poo in the landscape as well was. was have you ever thought about that, that before? Not once, Sophie. Not once mm. have I thought about is there enough dung diversity? Deer, you know, rabbit poo going on in the landscape, or is it sufficient just to have uh, a whole bunch of cows in a field? No, no, it's not sufficient. And my favourite thing was that you said that there were there were people working on like dung beetle accreditation for our food. I know, and the right? fact that maybe one day we can buy locally bought beef that is dung beetle accredited. I, I know. love that. It, that would be, I mean, that would be absolutely amazing. That would be so, so cool. And we'd need to work so hard as communicators to make people see, see that in the supermarket on their sirloin steak and not mm. be grossed out by it, but be excited by what that means. So there it's we go, Because I instinctively am like, that's a really cool but I need to remember that that's, that's People my People be like, oh not, my God, it's a beetle. <laughs> not the one of everyone else's. Yeah. Uh, yeah, learn. But no, I, I learned yeah. so much in that chapter. I was so excited about everything I learned in that, in, in, in that trip. Mm, okay, and f- one final one then. Um, yeah, I haven't done very well, have I? No, uh, I wouldn't say that it's been your best quiz. No, it hasn't. Um, yeah. But a, a superb piece of work nonetheless. I can imagine that your brain is also completely fried from little... um, the promotion of all... But a final one, perhaps, how many times does forget-me-not reference one or all of the Kardashians? <laughs> Is it twice? I counted three. Did you? Because we've got the one about, no more about the anatomy of the Kardashian than about something to do with the porpoise. And then, oh, I can't remember the other one. But there was one which was nearly going to be part of the quiz, which was how much money does Kim Kardashian uh, spend a month on... Breaking the internet. Yeah, sorting her body out or something. Yeah. And then there was a final one, right? I listened to the last chapter yesterday and there was a final one at the end. And I thought, oh, I think that's three. Um, oh, yeah, so, probably yeah. three. I mean, they were on my, <laughs> they were, they were, they kept, they just kept cropping up when I was writing. I was writing for a long time and they just kept cropping up. And I was like, there's a Were you, were you binging the series as like an off switch or? I wasn't actually, but what, what, <laughs> again, when I read the audiobook, I was like, crikey, I watched too much Bridgerton. When I wrote the Merlin chapter, I don't know if you can spot the fact that I watched Bridgerton three times during that chapter. Three times. Three times. So that's why I was having enormous fun with my lords, your grace, your honour, you know. I can see it now that you've said it. Bridgerton played a huge part of Merlin. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, there was a lot of like, you know, historic lady, Hen, falconry is the word I'm going for. I found mm, that very interesting. Lords and Ladies. Yeah. Yes, yes, so yes. I, no, I my see Lords the and link ladies. now. I see the link Yeah. Now. And then it just so happened to work quite well with talking about the sort of grouse shooting and the, and the, the, the high society yes. uh, element of, of that. Mm. Mm. Yes. Well, next time I read it, I'm going to go back and try and uh, guess what other shows you were watching. I wonder what else. 
uh, <laughs> pilfer through the pages. Listen, Sophie, thank you so, so much for coming back to Fallout Earth again and also for putting this wonderful book out into the world. Mostly, I just want to highlight how much I enjoy that, you know, there's joy in your book. And like you said, that's become a, a huge thing for the way you want to communicate. You're putting positivity into a world which can often be leveraged on negativity um, and stopping us all from descending into gloom with it. So thank you so much. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for writing this book. Thank you for making time for me now when you're in the absolute midst of a whirlwind Ooh. flurry of the promotion that every successful author oh. should have. Um, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure as always. And please keep this up. This is vitally important communication for what it's That's up. very kind of you. All seven of my listeners are probably nodding. <laughs> um, where can people get more from you, Sophie? Uh, well, um, I mean, you don't have to. But Instagram, at Sophie Pavs, Twitter, at Sophie Pavs, or the book, if you would like a, if you would like a pal. I very much implore people to go and get the book. And if you don't like, list, if you don't like reading books, the audiobook is also absolutely magnificent. Um, I have left And if you don't like reading or listening, you, oh, thank you. Jog. If you don't like reading <laughs> or listening, then I just wouldn't bother. I mean, the book's 11 hours, so strap in. Yeah. <laughs> no, brilliant. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sophie. Yes, go and support your local bookshop as well if you can. Uh, you don't necessarily yeah, have to go please to the do. great behemoth that is Amazon. Go and do something good with your book purchase. I will. Thanks, Emma. Yeah. See you soon. See you soon. Thank you. And as always, you can get more from Forward It's Earth on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for Forward It's Earth podcast. Make sure you've subscribed. Go on, leave us a cheeky little five star review. And if you want to purchase your own copy of Forget Me Not, which of course you absolutely should if you haven't already, I've popped a bookshop.org link uh, to purchase that through a route that supports local bookshops wherever you are in the description of the episode. And if you want to get in touch with me, don't forget you can just drop us an email on forwarditsearthpod at gmail.com and we'll see you soon for another episode. Bye. Bye.